This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. The Philadelphia Trumpet presents a new America in Crisis event on Monday. At Armstrong Auditorium in Edmond, Oklahoma, audiences will hear from a former director of intelligence and a Trump administration national security advisor, General Michael Flynn. What might we learn, even from the fact that General Flynn is coming to the Trumpet in the first place? That's the week ahead. In the Week in Review... In Asia, a foreign adversary to many nations is turning blue water into fortifications and steering the world toward war. Germany is bringing a dangerous form of government into the 21st century. Two counterintuitive developments in Iran, and you might not have heard of fifth-generation warfare, but you are involved in it. All this and more, coming up next on Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour this Friday, August the 18th. I'm Philip Nice, serving as host, as chief question asker, with our question answerers, Philadelphia Trumpet writers Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. Andrew Miller. Hello. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. This weekend is like no other in trumpet history, and in some ways, uh, the trumpet and its publishers, Philadelphia Church of God, have hosted uh, lectures and meetings in the past with uh, British journalist Melanie Phillips comes to mind, several diplomats, uh, ambassadors, or former ambassadors from Israel, uh, uh, and an ambassador from Azerbaijan. There's others as well who've come to the uh, trumpet offices uh, before, but this week, there this weekend, rather, we are preparing for the visit of General Michael Flynn. There's a lot of excitement surrounding that. I'm sure you've heard of it already. So we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Andrew Miller will give us an update on the Anglo-America region, and we'll talk about uh, one of the things that General Flynn has emphasized and written about and how it matches up with what the trumpet has been saying for quite a long time. But one of the things that traditional Americans and believers of the Bible have done is paid attention to events outside of America. Uh, there is so much happening inside, so many dangerous things happening inside this broad land, and it's our land for most of us, so uh, it can be easy to focus on that at length. But Americans, believers in the Bible, patriots, traditional uh, Americans, people like General Flynn, uh, know that you must educate yourself and watch and pray, as it were, regarding international events. Uh, like our brothers, the British before us, it's a global outlook that is necessary. So news from the Middle East, news from Europe, news from Asia is, in fact, essential for more than just the average news junkie or the average consumer of what they call infotainment. You can't understand the Bible or the world you are living in or your own country or ultimately yourself without it. And I mean, that's leaving aside the fact that each person in each house in all 195 countries is just as important and valuable as every person in this country. That kind of goes without saying. But the, the point here is that we do need to watch world events. It's a very American thing, actually, to watch events outside of America, outside of your own sphere, your own everyday life. Watch your world, as trumpet creator Joel Hilliker has said. Maybe that's one of several sub-lessons you could say from hosting a former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency and National Security Advisor. Jeremiah Jacques, you watch Asia. Help us to watch Asia. What has happened in that vast quarter of the world this week? Yes. Well, first, a quick update on Russia's war against Ukraine. We're still in a bit of a waiting period in this war, so unpacking it right now is a bit tedious. But there are some clear developments that we can discuss. Uh, first of all, more reports are coming in about Ukrainian special forces crossing the Dnipro River from Kherson and then carrying out attacks on well-fortified Russian positions on the other side. I guess that would be the south or the eastern side, depending on what part of the river you're talking about. But they are able to carry out these attacks with impunity. So this is the area where Ukraine had planned a major operation 
at the start of its counteroffensive, but then it had to revise those plans after the Kokova Dam was blown up. So now it's just these small targeted attacks, not enough to bring in major armor, but still enough to be strategically significant for the Ukrainians. Uh, meanwhile, the main thrust of the Ukrainian counteroffensive is still happening in Zaporizhia. That's where you've got thousands of Ukrainian soldiers who had been receiving training in NATO nations that are now entering the fray. So it's better equipment. It's better training with these troops. And this week, they pierced the first of three lines of Russian defense on at least one area of the front there. So th those are the landmines, the first of the three, that it seems that Ukraine is now penetrated and... Now it's on to the anti-tank defenses and the other more kind of more robust fortifications. So too early for any big celebrations here, but this could bring more uh, complications for Russian logistics, especially if Ukraine can continue to push a bit deeper here. So a lot to keep an eye on there. Another short story here about India. The Indians are taking some big steps to boost defense ties with the Philippines. So this is, it's a different Asian alliance Asian uh, alliance than what we usually talk about with, you know, Russia and China pulling nations into their orbits. And actually, the main motivation for this India-Philippines partnership at present is to counter China. But you can still see how this could lay the groundwork for various Asian nations to better come together in the future. And then speaking of China... There was a powerful opinion piece in Newsweek a couple of days ago about Xi Jinping preparing for war. This is by Gordon Chang. He's one of the fiercest critics of the Chinese Communist Party. And he takes a look at the way Xi Jinping has been making some major changes in personnel in the upper rungs of the military. So a big shakeup is underway, including putting a Xi Jinping loyalist over China's nuclear arsenal. And Cheng makes a compelling case that this, this uh, shakeup here, or this reshuffle, shows that Chairman Xi is, quote, contemplating using, or at least threatening to use, his most destructive weapons. So it's a very, uh, a very sobering forecast there. So we report on the trends and what experts say about the trends, especially when they match the trumpet explanation of Bible prophecy. But interestingly, in there in the case of India and the Philippines, uh, we are saying that an arrangement meant to counter some of the other Asian nations is actually going to empower uh, Russia and China further in the end. I, I think you could argue that case. It doesn't look that you know apparent at present, but I think you could argue that. So hit us with the biggest story from Asia this week. Sure, yes. Well, uh, as I just said there, Xi Jinping is preparing China for war. And this week, we saw how this goes beyond words. And we got a look at one concrete way he is making those preparations. And that is by continuing to militarize islands in the South China Sea. New satellite imagery shows that over the last month or so, the Chinese have built a new airstrip on Triton Island. That's in the Parasol Island chain, and it lies inside Vietnam's exclusive economic zone. This airstrip is uh, it's only about 2,000 feet long, so that is long enough to launch drones and turboprop aircraft, but it's not long enough for most fighter jets. Um, and, and then there's also a sizable new cement factory that has just been built on that same island. And it has all sprung up in apparently about a month. So this construction is happening very rapidly. And so far, the Chinese have refused to explain themselves. Beijing refuses to share any details about what it's doing. They have a standard response. This expansion is for navigation safety. But it's hard to buy the argument. Do you need military-grade facilities for navigation safety? That was analyst Palki Sharma there, and she's exactly right about the ludicrousness of China's claims that this is only for navigation safety. One uh, clear way, I think, to see the ridiculousness of that is just to keep in mind that Triton is only the latest island that the Chinese have militarized in this very important maritime region, the, the South China Sea. Over the last eight years or so, the Chinese have actually built some islands, turning what used to be just submerged you know, reefs and shoals into serious fortresses full of soldiers and weaponry, just very well fortified. So China is really militarizing as much of the South China Sea as it can. And the idea is that uh, with enough of the sea's islands under Chinese control, then China would have 
A2AD or anti-access area denial capability. So just just you know be able to control who can come through this whole region. And that means that China could possibly prevent other naval powers from accessing China's coasts or coming to Taiwan's defense. So these uh these developments on Triton Island are just the latest developments in that overall strategy. And it shows that China's grip on this area is tightening. I think of how in history class, your teacher takes you through the lead up to major wars that resulted in masses of people dying and enormous amounts of destruction. Uh, this is that. <laughs> this is the lead up to war. This is the lead up to massive destruction. You see uh, China racing along and those satellite images are amazing when you see uh, an image of a before image of blue sea right. and an after image of of uh, a fortress, as, as you said there. Right. So I think of the South China Sea as kind of China's Gulf of Mexico. What is the strategic value of controlling that body of water for China? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's off their coast there, parts of it anyway. Um, and it's also among the most valuable and important um, resource regions of the world. There's believed to be some 11 billion barrels of oil there, almost 200 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, and lots of fish, about 10% of total global fisheries are in this area. But even more importantly than what's in the South China Sea is what passes through. And that is trillions of dollars worth of trade, about $3.4 trillion worth, according to the most recent estimates. And that comes to about 21% of total global trade. So, you know, the South China Sea is a, an exceptionally important ocean region. And it's easy to see, I think, why China wants to better militarize its islands there so that it can, you know, just lock it down and control it. You've written on this and China's militarization of the South China Sea continues. And you've pointed us toward an article that we'll put in the show notes. China is steering the world toward war. What does that tell us about the ultimate outcome of this situation? Yeah, well, that's a, that's an article that Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote in the July 2016 print edition. And in one part of that article, he writes, China's militarized islands now function as forward bases for Beijing to challenge seven decades of American naval dominance in the Pacific Rim. This should alarm the world. And from there, Mr. Flurry says that uh, China's takeover down there is contributing to the fulfillment of a Bible prophecy about modern-day America and Britain being besieged by China and other nations and, and kind of losing maritime holdings that they once had to countries like China. So he, he talks about Deuteronomy 2852, and uh, it talks about having sea gates that the U.S. and Britain once controlled taken over by these enemy nations. And Mr. Flurry says China's militarization of the South China Sea is one of many places where onlookers today can, quote, already see this prophecy moving toward its fulfillment. So that is, again, China is steering the world toward war. That article we have come back to several times. Uh, read that at thetrumpet.com. Now let's go to the region that the editor-in-chief has been emphasizing over the past few months, especially, uh, not to mention since the 1990s, really, <laughs> and Herbert W. Armstrong before him going back to the 1930s, and that region is Europe. Mr. Palmer, give us an update on Europe, if you would, sir. So the United States has approved Israel to sell its Arrow 3 missile system to Germany. This is one of the best missile defense systems in the world, and another example of the uh, Jewish state in the Middle East trusting Germany with some of its most advanced technology. There's a lot of specific prophecies that said that Israel would trust Germany and a lot of specific prophecies that say that it doesn't work out well. We've also seen 100,000 migrants arrive in Italy so far this year. That's a high number. That puts Italy on course to actually have you know, more migrants arriving than in previous years. And that's a bit of a headache to Giorgia Maloney, their uh, new very anti-migrant prime minister or newish who got, came into office on a platform of uh, reducing migrant flows. She's worked primarily on doing this by traveling around the Mediterranean and creating uh, links and alliances with North African countries. This strategy isn't bearing fruit so far. 
so I think if she wants to hold on to her job, she'll have to turn to some much tougher measures. And uh, I think this may well tie into the trend that we'll talk about with our main story. And then uh, another piece of news we've seen, Germany is refusing to sell missiles to Ukraine unless they're programmed to not land in Russia. A bit of a uh, odd requirement given that Ukraine is at war with Russia, but um, you know, this is the predicament that we've seen Germany in throughout this invasion where they are, it doesn't suit them to publicly break with the United States and publicly side with Russia. There is a lot of evidence that they have done some kind of a backroom deal with Russia where they're not going to impose the Ukraine invasion. And so you'll see headline deals that look pretty impressive, lots of tank sales or thousand billions or millions of euros sent to Ukraine, and then the small print or once it's been announced, things are delayed, things are made not useful, it doesn't actually happen. And, and you know, we're seeing seeing that trend continue there is really uh, Germany is enabling the rise of Russia because at heart, Germany and Russia both uh, fear and oppose the United States. And that's kind of the, the reality that those these kind of developments expose. In your morning news update that you provide to some of us, you detailed what Italy and Maloney have been doing. And that caught my eye actually this morning. She really is working on making Italy great again. And you realize what Italy and Germany and Europe could be if they really push to make themselves a geopolitical power again. Um, you mentioned your main story for Europe. What is your main story? So the German president has recently suggested banning the alternative for Deutschland. And I think this is a really interesting, it's a really interesting story because it's almost, it's easy to have sympathy for both sides here, I think. Uh, so the alternative for Deutschland is Germany's second most popular party. One in five German voters, at least according to polls at the moment, support the alternative for Deutschland. You go to some parts of East Germany, they're the most popular party. This is not some small, minor political party. So Frank-Walter Steinmeier, the president, we said we have all, we all have it in our hands to put those who despise our democracy in their place. Uh, Spiegel, the Europe's largest news magazine, they had a big headline, a big splash, ban the enemies of the Constitution. Uh, and so they just want to ban them rising to power. And I think it shows the dangerous dynamic underway in German politics. Because, you know, on the one hand, the AFD is a genuinely dangerous party. You, you have people at the top of the party that are very close to being out and out neo-Nazis if they've not crossed that line already that will kind of talk about, well, we need to be proud of Germany's history. We need to be proud even of, of what our soldiers have done in the 20th century. And we need to stop commemorating the Holocaust. Uh, we need a fundamental reevaluation of that, re that history. They had a, a leader from Bulgaria telling them that you know, Germany needs to step up and take its place, not just in Europe, but in the world. And Germany needs to not be held back by its history. You know, they need to become, forget the history, become an aggressive military power again. That's basically their message. And so this is, yeah, this is a country that you know, we've talked about. We talk about on this show, we've talked about in our magazine, the failure to denazify themselves in the 1940s and 50s, or Britain and America's failure to denazify them and then just left them to do it themselves how this fell short, how this meant that Nazi officials infiltrated just about every level of German government initially. That's all well-documented history. You have this very worrying party, uh, and yeah, you can see why there's a case for banning it. At the same time, though, what happens if you ban a party that one in five people support? And also, there are issues that are not far-right or extremist, that the AFD are the only party that will support or that we'll talk about, like migration. You know, they're the only party, really, that will get to grips with Germany's migrant crisis. That you know, you, I've mentioned this a few times on this show, but you have this outbreak of people being attacked at public swimming pools. And it's all coming from young men from a specific background. You know, it's all Muslims from, from largely from Chechnya or Syria. 
and nobody wants to talk. The only reason why it's talked about at all, really, is the alternative for Deutschland and that they will bring this up. And you know, you don't have to be a Nazi to to be worried about the safety of your wives and daughters in an area in a town that used to be quite safe. Now, large numbers of migrants have come out, and people can't safely walk the streets at night. You know, that's not a far right or extreme concern. But it's only this far right or extreme party that will talk about it. It's the same with environmental issues, where there's some radical environmental issues in Germany that's just going to kneecap their economy. I mean, it's getting to the point. I mean, very quickly they're going to you know, do things that that impact ordinary families, like outlawing gas boilers. You know, you've got to kind of have some much more expensive ecosystem uh, that doesn't work very well. You're, you know, it looks like the German manufacturing industry is set to shoot itself in the foot because they're going to shut down internal combustion engine production. Uh, all of these these kind of things, and again, and then you know, at a European Union level, you've got crazy policies to get rid of farms and farming and and all of this and again the only people that will talk about it and stand up to this are the alternative for deutschland and everyone else to lesser to greater and lesser degrees but everyone else is pretty much on board with this environmentalist movement so if you ban the afd you're basically saying you cannot disagree with this elite consensus whether it's on migration whether it's with um migrants whether it's with ukraine uh, I mean, publicly, at least, there's a lot of uh, support for Ukraine or opposition to Putin, and the the alternative for Deutschland are the only ones that are really different in the public face. You know, there's a, there's just a whole range of these different policies that there's a mainstream consensus, and if you outlaw anything but the mainstream consensus, I think you you, you turn you turn Germany into a time bomb. Time bomb. Uh, you know, there's a real risk of. Uh, you know, if you if you if one in five people cannot vote for this party, this party that's rapidly rising to the top, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, you're starting to tell people if you disagree with this kind of mainstream consensus on immigration, on environmentalism, or all of these issues, your only alternative is to smash the system, is to destroy the German constitution, uh, is to end German democracy, or that German democracy isn't really democracy. You're only allowed to choose from a narrow range of options. So they're looking at basically outlawing not simply far right beliefs, but anything that is outside the mainstream consensus. Out of curiosity, from uh, from my perspective, considering the, the president in Germany is a figurehead um, and obviously outlawing a, a party that is heavily involved in politics and in the Bundestag as the AFD would be a huge shift. Can they legally do that? Constitution gives them power. Like you know, the Constitution was written to stop Nazis rising. So there are things in Germany's basic law that allow the outlawing of political parties. It's been used against, is it the NSDAP or you know, there have been extreme out overt neo-Nazi parties that have been outlawed before. So it's legal. Uh, it's not something that the president can unilaterally do. It's not within his purview. Uh, but there are mechanisms for making that happen. And the president would certainly have a, a bully pulpit, say, for pushing something like that through. And that seems to be the first step you would take if you want to introduce this into the public consciousness and and, and eventually get it done. Uh, I mean, this event that you picked really does show what you call the, they're a dangerous dynamic. I remember everyone gets a, called a Nazi these days. So I remember when the alternative for Deutschland was rising years ago and I asked you, you know, okay, they're getting called a Nazis. Are they Nazis? And I thought you really uh, laid it out well, the, the character of this group. Uh, and this party is dangerous and it is rising in power. But the leadership of Germany, the establishment, the, the precedent, I think, is being set for those who control Germany to control the opposition. And that is a dangerous, uh, dangerous thing to, to see become established so wherever the trends wend and weave where is it that this trend this trend of the character of german leadership will end up so this is a subject it's a very relevant subject to our latest trumpet print magazine that we've just had go on the website this week i have an article there europe's altered personality where i think this is this is a story that's been taking place over 15 years that's been taking place since europe's financial crisis since in 2008 since the migrant crisis that began in 2015, 
And it's something that Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has kind of had landmark articles about all of those events. But it's also something that has really intensified this summer, where we are seeing a change in Europe. Herbert W. Armstrong was writing right after World War II finished that you would have a European Union, and he used those words, European Union, and it would be led by Germany, and it would it would have this much more authoritarian, uh, dictatorial character. And you know, that he made those forecasts based on Bible prophecy. Now, he did say it was also probably going to be a bit more sophisticated than you know, Adolf Hitler, and, and maybe it would be a little uh, harder to spot because of that, but that you would see, see Europe, like you, you would see a, a, this kind of European character. And for many decades, I think people have kind of written off Europe as not being that as being weak, or as I talked about in this article, kind of, you know, vegan and liberal and a bicyclist, you know, they're just kind of not muscular, uh, not, you know, a bit wishy-washy and, and, and all of the, not very far from the kind of the strong Europe that we're forecasting. But we cannot allow that impression to hide the changes that are going on. And so many of the changes that Mr. Armstrong wrote about have happened already you know the way that you've had this he talks about this european union begin as an economic union become a political union and econ- uh, and then later a military union uh in the same trumpet print edition trumpet editor-in-chief gerald flurry has an article that's called uh russia's war on ukraine is reshaping europe that goes through some of the military changes that we're seeing taking place in europe just since russia invaded ukraine europe is changing and it's becoming much more like the europe that is prophesied in the Bible. And that really is a key theme of of the trumpet print. So many of these things that Mr. Armstrong, that Mr. Flurry have been saying for years, they're happening now. And they're not really getting a huge amount of attention. There are some. There are some people that are starting to talk about, um, I guess they've started to calling it like civilizationism, this belief that, okay, we don't talk necessarily about white supremacy in Europe or racial supremacy in Europe, but we will talk about civilizational supremacy in in europe uh, and european uh, civilization kind of being superior uh so we're seeing a transformation in europe into this what the bible calls a beast power a power with lots of aggression that acts like a, a, a well not a wild animal that acts much worse than that that acts like a lion a tiger that tears and and attacks that's the rise that we're seeing in europe and that's the kind of change that's underway and that's what our trumpet print edition talks about That is the September 2023 Philadelphia Trumpet. You mentioned Europe's altered personality and Russia's war on Ukraine is reshaping Europe. Also in that issue, the Nazi billionaire families and German politics and Europe longs to rebuild its empires. So again, something the editor-in-chief has been focusing on, uh, you trumpet writers have been focusing on, uh, the September 2023 Philadelphia Trumpet posted at thetrumpet.com. Mihailo Zekic there chatting with Richard Palmer. We'll hear from him next. Yeah, so as usual in the Middle East, it's been really, really busy. Two stories that I want to focus on uh, for this first part of my segment both happened yesterday and both involve Iran and will flow into my main story quite well. Um, yesterday, the Iranian foreign minister, Hossein Amir, Abdullahian visited uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. For the first time, uh, an Iranian foreign minister has visited Saudi Arabia in over eight years. So Saudi Arabia and Iran normally aren't too friendly with each other. But as of this year, we've covered on this program and on our website quite a bit. That's starting to change. It's starting to be a bit of a, a detente between them. And also yesterday, the Washington Post published an article that uh, detailed some information found in leaked documents in Russia, talking about how Russia is planning on starting a uh, giant new factory in their Tartarstan region to mass produce Iran's Shahed uh, 136 
suicide drones. These drones have obviously had a lot of coverage in the media. They're uh, a weapon Russia is uh, increasingly being dependent on in at least uh, causing problems for Ukraine, not necessarily turning the tide of the war, as we heard earlier. But um, it's certainly interesting to see Russia start to depend more and more on Iranian technology. And the Washington Post piece has a few other bits on how Iran is certainly uh, – uh, making uh, making Russia beg a little bit to get more and more of these drones coming over. Russia aims to have about 6,000 of these drones produced by 2025, so you can see how much they really uh, appreciate Iran's involvement. We talk a lot about Iran uh, getting more involved in Europe and causing a scare in Europe, certainly helping Russia or sponsoring Russia's war in Ukraine is a huge part of that, and we'll be sure to keep tabs on that as this development continues. So I don't watch the Middle East as closely as you do. And uh, just to me on first mention, it seems a little counterintuitive that the Iranian foreign minister visits Saudi Arabia, as you said, for the first time in quite a while. Uh, your main story also seems a little counterintuitive to me. Explain that main story and and why it's important and and what it is leading to. Yeah, so this main story is actually two stories, but they both fit in pretty well, like hand and glove. It's a continuation, I guess you could say, of what I talked about last week. Um, last Friday, the Wall Street Journal published uh, an article claiming that Iran has significantly slowed the pace at uh, which it is accumulating near weapons-grade enriched uranium, their words, and has also diluted some of its uh, stockpiles of enriched uranium that it already has. Um, aside from the journal piece, which, as per usual, cites comp uh, anonymous sources, which they have to do if they want to keep making this kind of stuff, uh, uh, we don't really have too much in the way of confirmation from, uh, uh, say, the International Atomic Energy Agency or some other more authoritative source. But it is pretty eye-opening considering how much they've been ramping up uh their uranium production and then on this week on august 15th ismail khani who is the leader of the quds force which in a nutshell is basically the special forces of iran's special forces visited baghdad and according to the think tank critical threats uh uh analyzing some of the middle eastern media coming out he told uh an iranian-backed uh, militia group there to stop attacking Iraqi government forces that are assisting U.S. troops in Iraq, in this case, convoying uh, supplies and 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 whatnot, which considering how the United States and Iran have been directly and indirectly fighting each other in Iraq and in other theaters in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf through proxies like Hezbollah, that the Iranians are telling their own satellite groups to not target U.S. targets is a pretty eyebrow-raising uh, event, to say the least. So like you said, kind of a double-barreled story there. What what links these two uh, subjects of Iran slowing down nuclear enrichment and telling Iraqi proxies not to attack American targets? What uh, ties them most uh, firmly together? Well, as we covered on last week's program and programs before, there's been discussions about a new Iran nuclear deal being in the works between the United States and, of course, Iran. And unlike the last deal, which was hashed out in 2015, signed in 2016, this deal is being kept secret. Uh, the United States is not saying anything. Uh, for all we can tell, there is no deal happening, according to the United States government. With uh, regard to the questions about Iran, um, I, I can't... Uh confirm the reports that you've, uh, you've cited. Um, uh, what I can say is, of course, we would welcome any steps that Iran takes to actually de-escalate the growing nuclear threat that it has posed um, since the United States got out of the uh, Iran nuclear agreement. There is no agreement between us on nuclear matters. The agreement um, that we're pursuing to bring home those who are wrongfully detained uh, in Iran is an entirely separate matter that um, we want to bring uh, to a successful conclusion. Uh, and that's what, uh, uh, what I'm focused on. That was Secretary of State Anthony Blinken giving a press conference uh, this week about that. As you can see, he's denying that any deal exists. 
But if you talk to the Iranians, if you talk to Iranian sources, they're saying, yeah, there's negotiations for a deal going on. They're pretty close. If you talk to the Israeli sor- sources, as a lot of media has been, they're saying we're seeing what's going on right now and we don't like it. So and from the few bits and pieces of this deal that we've been able to gather, which we've talked about on this program before, talks about Iran halting its enrichment process in exchange for financial sanctions relief and prisoner swaps. The U.S. has been fulfilling its part of the bargain. It did its prisoner swap last week, as we talked about. And now it looks like Iran is fulfilling its end of the bargain as well. It's uh, slowing down. It hasn't halted. It hasn't even reversed course in its uh, enrichment program. It's just slowing down the rate at which it's increasing enrichment. But it's still something. It's even telling its uh, partners in Iraq not to go attack to the U.S. So from just for the bits and pieces we could see and applying what we learned from there with what's going on on the ground, it looks like this nuclear deal is good to go. And again, it's an under-the-table nuclear deal. There may be an official deal with an actual piece of paper we can actually look at down the road. And I suspect that's probably what's going to happen. That's why we're getting these olive branches from Iran to try and keep the negotiations going, to try and uh, get something that gives Iran even more of what it wants. We'll see if that happens per se. But regardless of what you hear from the State Department, regardless of what you hear from, say, other so-called official sources like that, you could be almost certain that there is a nuclear deal that's being applied right now. And the Iranians are getting enough of what they want from it, enough that makes them pretty happy, even more so than them getting a nuclear bomb for them to go ahead. Who knows exactly what's being offered that we don't know about? I mean, obviously, getting billions of dollars worth of financial sanctions to send to its terror proxies always makes Iran happy. But again, this is a developing story, and you'll have to stay tuned to see for more details. So like I said, this appears on the surface to be counterintuitive and ebb more than a flow, but the undercurrent is definitely strongly flowing toward what the trumpet has said about uh, Iran's future before. Uh, Tell us, remind us where we are expecting Iran to end up out out of all of this negotiation, out of all of this uh, uh, cloak and dagger (laughs) uh, type of, of... uh, machination. What What is it that Iran, regardless of the ebb, regardless of the flow, will end up doing? Well, there is no Bible scripture that you can't go to the Exodus 25.10 and it says Iran shall get a nuclear bomb. But tying in different Bible passages, we can be pretty certain that uh, at some point Iran is going to get a nuclear weapon. Daniel 11 verse 40 is a prophecy about Iran under the biblical name, the King of the South, uh, which that prophecy refers to Iran pushing against the King of the North, in this case, Europe, like what we just heard, and that Europe sees Iran as such big of a threat that it responds with a whirlwind attack. Whatever this push is, it's going to hurt. And there's a lot of other things, there's a lot of things that go into this push. Our editor-in-chief has talked about that quite a bit. If you follow the prophetic passage, it goes to Daniel 12, verse 1, which refers to a time of trouble such as never was to a nation since that time or ever will be. Um, you could tie that in with Matthew chapter 24, talks about the same event in verses 21 and 22, where if it wasn't stopped, no flesh should be saved alive. This is talking about nuclear weapons. This is talking about a nuclear war. and all starts with actions by Iran. Whether that push per se involves Iran detonating a nuclear bomb remains to be seen, but it certainly plays a huge factor into this. And the closer we see Iran get a nuclear bomb, the closer we can see the fulfillment of prophecies like this. That in Matthew 24 is Jesus Christ, not just a prophet, not just the Old Testament, but Jesus Christ, the prophet, prophesying about weapons of mass destruction. Learn more about that, as you said, at thetrumpet.com, explained the new Iran nuclear deal. The title, again, explained the new Iran nuclear deal. As promised for our fourth segment, we have Andrew Miller covering the Anglo-America region. Andrew, can you give us a rundown of the big stories before you get to the main topic you want to dwell on? Yes, an illegal Chinese-run biolab was discovered in California. 30-year mortgages are actually headed upwards towards 8% in Biden's America and leak photos exposed the harrowing treatment of January 6 prisoners. I could not believe those photos by the way. It's the the 
it's a gulag. It's an absolute gulag that these political prisoners are being held in. And that relates to your to your main story that uh, you want to bring us. Yeah, and actually, that is kind of I kind of have a double main story I wanted to to talk about, but that both relate back to those harrowing pictures. Um, one is actually an interview that took place some time ago, but finally just uh, in, was aired on Tucker Carlson's program with uh, the former police chief Stephen Sund uh, about exactly what happened on January 6th that got those people arrested and in, in those gulag-like conditions. Uh, and then the second story was actually Donald Trump's fourth indictment um, for trying to expose the election fraud that they couldn't get exposed on January 6th. So a uh, number of stories kind of interweaved here. Uh, fascinating piece. Actually, I really recommend anyone if they um, get a chance to, if you go to Tucker Carlson's uh, Twitter account, or sorry, I guess they call that the, the X account now. Um, he's got the interview with the former police chief, Stephen Sund, who is explaining what happened on that day when, when, those, when those prisoners were arrested. Uh, and he said they, um, <laughs> he found out after the fact that the FBI uh, knew there were about 18 or 19 people considered domestic terrorists. Uh, coming to that protest, uh, which isn't a lot. There's over 100,000 people there, and you've got 18 or 19 troublemakers. But they said the FBI knew these 18 or 19 troublemakers were coming, and they never told the Capitol Police they were coming. Uh, the FBI and the CIA put numerous plants in the protest, which isn't unusual, a protest that size. The FBI normally does have some plants in there to help keep uh, keep tabs on it. But they didn't tell the Capitol Police who and where the plants were. Uh, and then when things started getting bad, uh, the Capitol Police requested uh, National Guard support. And the, the authorities in the FBI and the CIA who take care of that made sure that didn't happen for several hours so uh stevenson he's basically on tucker carlson i mean it's like you can see the footage of the police and the protesters clashing but it's like he said he said but he's like the fbi knew there were troublemakers coming they put their own plants in there but they never informed the capitol police uh of what was about to happen and made sure we they didn't get uh, the National Guard support they needed, which is all, <laughs> uh, it almost looks like a comedy of errors. Uh, but but Stephen Sun in this interview with Tucker Carlson is really kind of making the point. And we've got um, our executive editor, Mr. Stephen Filet's trumpet brief this week about this, that even the former police chief, he's no longer the chief of the Capitol Police, but he's saying, said, said, they said, said it really looked like <laughs> the FBI wanted a riot. Uh, and so, because I said they, they had enough foreknowledge that they could have prevented it if they had chose to, uh, but they wanted this, they knew this riot was happening and they let it occur. And, uh, it's a point we've made before, uh, is that now <laughs> Donald Trump, his third indictment was for stirring up violence on January 6th, uh, 2021, uh, but the more clear-eyed news watchers point out this fact that said there were 100 congressmen ready to protest election fraud. And each one that protests is two hours of debate. So you had like two hours of debates and investigations scheduled that never happened because uh, you shut down the Capitol during the riot. And when it reconvened, all except two of those congressmen lost their nerve. Uh, and so as they said, they said, really, Trump's only chance of getting that election fraud exposed was for a peaceful protest followed by congressional investigation. Uh, the FBI <laughs> assuredly knew this, uh, knew there was a protest coming and let it happen, presumably for the very purpose of shutting that down. Uh, which then ties into our other story. Uh, like I said, Trump's third indictment was over the fact that he, he he's being accused of stirring up violence at the Capitol. His fourth indictment is basically over efforts for him to expose election fraud in Georgia. 
So after the protest was shut down on January 6th, Trump and his supporters continued trying to expose the election fraud after the fact. And now he's being indicted for that as well. So not only not only has he been indicted for trying to expose election fraud on January 6th, he's being indicted for trying to expose election fraud after January 6th. And then many of his supporters are in gulag-like conditions uh, for their role uh, in coming out for those peaceful protests, all because a riot happened that the FBI knew was um, going to occur and turned a blind eye to uh, so that they'd have their false flag. The Capitol Police want to maintain order. The Capitol Police officer suits up in the locker room every day and straps on his weapon and walks out of the room for the purpose of maintaining order. Uh, That's what a police officer does. The agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation wants to maintain order, right? (laughs) I mean, that's what we assume. We assume the police, their goal, whether they're being sneaky about it, whether they're being, you know open and marked, you know, in marked cars or in uniform about it. The goal is to maintain order. The goal is to uphold the law. Well, look at what Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund is saying openly. And you have to say not all of the agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation wanted to maintain order. That's the logical conclusion. Yes, they infiltrate uh, yes, we understand that. But why not share? You always share that with your fellow peace officers, law officers. And that was not the case. And that just fits so many other things, so much part of a larger pattern of wanting to subvert the law rather than to uphold the law, to use the power that the the law grants our agents to subvert the law. Something is very wrong in uh, in in America you saw those images of people getting all the way to the chamber, like all the way to both chambers. Actually, the Senate chamber was empty and they were roaming around in there. And the, and the, I remember the images from the, uh, the house chamber where somebody had, had broken the glass and there were, there were agents, uh, or, or police officers in the chamber with guns drawn pointed at that broken glass, uh, window. And, and then, like you said, the main point and the thing people forget when they're looking at all these images is they reconvened, they passed the uh, certification of Joe Biden as president at 3.44 a.m. that morning. That was the point. <laughs> and that's what all those images led to. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. And it gets back to a point we've made so often on this program about the stolen uh, election Um you can uh, request our editor-in-chief's book, America Under Attack, which has a chapter about this um, and explains um, uh, not necessarily so much what Stephen Sun said this week, but a lot of the same things that other people said the same thing that he's saying now. Um, just getting into the details of how this was stolen. But more importantly, uh, linking it back to a prophecy in Second Kings 14 verses 26 through 28 uh, that talks about an end time antitype of King Jeroboam II, who wars to recover something. And uh, it makes it very powerfully in that book that um, that this election was stolen. Uh, Trump is the end time Jeroboam figure. Uh, and he has to war to recover the election that was stolen uh, from him. And it is a war to do so. Uh, you, you'll see. I mean, you've got uh, it's, it's like a spy thriller. You've got um, you've got the CIA and you've got the FBI and you've got the Capitol Police and you've got uh, intrigue and um, uh, like I said, uh, a mystery that's uh, slowly but surely you're getting a piece here and a piece there uh, and putting it together, uh, showing exactly what happened on that day. Um and that scripture uh, does definitely strongly indicate that that Trump will <laughs> will recover what was stolen from him, but it, it won't be um, uh, it won't be a victory that's just handed to him, whether through actual fighting or legal fighting or or some other type of like concerted effort. Uh, it's going to take to uh, expose what was done um, to <laughs> Donald Trump and his supporters on that day. 
Americans, your presidential election was stolen. You have exactly one way of controlling your government, and that is elections. And in 2020, you did not get that. Uh, in the 2022 midterms, it looks like you did not get that. And then it was fraud in 2020, it was fraudulently certified in a congressional proceeding that was disrupted by agents of the government, that that is what has happened. And that doesn't get old because it doesn't get less dangerous. Uh, this is the the state of America. This is the reason the people who have power over the government of America have their power is because of this very point and this this subterfuge, this, you know, almost like you said, fictional plot uh, is real. And that is and you are in a nation under attack. Welcome back for our final segment. We want to have a panel discussion on the topic of fifth generation warfare. I'm holding a book in my hand, The Citizen's Guide to Fifth Generation Warfare uh, by General Flynn. And he's talking about, again, fifth generation warfare that you might have heard that it's a little unclear. P different people have different uh, definitions, but here's how he defines it. First generation warfare, swords, <laughs> right? Uh, the, the first way that human beings fought and killed each other in an organized fashion. Second generation of warfare introduced the aspect of weapons that use gunpowder. Third generation flying machines, tanks, trench warfare, rockets, long range artillery, sometimes that's referred to as combined arms. Fourth generation warfare introduced atomic and nuclear weapons. And uh, some, some characterize it differently and emphasize uh, asymmetrical warfare where you have counterinsurgencies, you have terrorists, you have people hiding rather than, you know, massing in in militaries and and coming at each other like we saw in world war ii now fifth generation warfare here's how he defines it it's the overlap of hybrid irregular unrestricted warfare and it's directed at societies fifth generation warfare the target is societies it's not airplane squadrons it's not trench lines it's not um you know, submarines, the target is the society. The belief systems of civilians and other target audiences that equaled more value than just the geography or ideology of a nation or its leaders. What do you think about that? Fifth generation warfare is the targeting of societies. So I teach international relations. I often have a very hard time with people that come along and say these things are new. And I'm sure General Flynn is way more educated in the history of war than I am. And I suspect he knows that this is not new, but maybe it's a way of marketing it. Um, but I mean, one of the first examples that comes to mind is for me is like, say, Balaam. Let's take it all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, you know, Moses... Israel coming out of Egypt. They're trying to, how do we defeat these people? They try military. It doesn't respond. Let's send our women in. Let's break their morale. Let's um, break their will to fight us. Let's get them to sin. Um, let's breed character weakness in them. Let's break up their society. And you, you look at the way that the role psychological warfare has always, like, ideas are so powerful. Ideas are the things that change the world. It takes time for this to happen, but all warfare, all if it's sufficiently long, always becomes a war of ideas. And you look at things like the Protestant Reformation, and well, what wasn't that about a, a war to break the ideas and, and beliefs of society and, and about the destruction of belief systems? Uh, I mean, maybe I'm just not understanding his proposition, but surely the Cold War is a war of societies and ideas where you know, why, why was the space race relevant to the Cold War? Because it was about whose ideas are superior. And then you have an effort. You know, you, uh, Yuri Besmanov talks about the Soviet effort to come in and the espionage was not necessarily about stealing this specific state secret, but about undermining morale and, and, and ideas. So 
maybe I'm misunderstanding this, but I, I don't, this to me seems like something that has been there throughout all generations of warfare, even all the way back to swords. Yeah, Rome conquered enemies by making them Roman, uh, especially in the in the long term. The Christendom uh, over generations uh, conquered other nations by making them part of Christendom. The Khans conquered peoples and then got conquered by their ideas and by their ways of living. So that's one of the things that really catches my eye is is that this is this is. It's a new identification because the average American, the average person has not recognized the role of what he calls psychological operations, psyops, and has believed that if you have enough aircraft carriers and if you have enough uh, nuclear weapons and you have enough submarines uh, and you have enough money and a large enough population and territory, then you are more powerful. And this is someone who has experience in in these uh, matters and recognizes the role of intelligence, not just where is the enemy, but also how does the enemy think? How can you change how the enemy thinks? And they, um, the other person I've read, uh, in addition to Michael Flynn, who talks a lot about fifth generation warfare these days, is Dr. Robert Malone, uh, famous as one of the uh, primary inventors of mRNA vaccine technology. Uh, and he's using it in um, in particular reference to the COVID pandemic and pointing out that it's not necessarily new, but it is becoming more effective and more common because uh, he uh, <laughs> I think he, he often uh, talks about uh, something like ma- what he calls mass formation psychosis or like brainwashing as one of the weapons in fifth generation warfare and then points out that like Hitler kind of used fifth generation warfare to conquer Germany. He used third generation warfare to conquer everywhere else. Um, but like you, <laughs> he's almost like a hypnotist uh, in the way he convinced the Germans to rally around him. Thence, once he had his military base, he used tanks and trenches and everything else to like try to subjugate by force. Uh, but uh, Dr. Malone was talking about in the COVID pandemic, uh, that you, uh, <laughs> whether it was engineered deliberately or leaked on purpose or leak accidentally, once you had this virus going around the world, you had a very high level of coordination between national governments to trump up this threat uh, and convince people to lock down and mask up. And you basically increased like globalist government control uh, in many nations around the world, not using um, it's not like they they sent out um, (laughs) a tank squadron to to lock down New York City. It's you manipulated people into thinking that, like, okay, this is we need to, like, lock down and stay inside and and mask up and let the government spend as much money as they want. And now it's coming out that like 10% of the money they spent was on corruption schemes and, uh, and things like that. But it's, and uh, Robert Malone kind of, (laughs) he brings that mass formation psychosis angle. He's like, he's like, he's like what the government, what the U S government and other governments were doing during COVID is very similar to how Hitler brainwashed the German people. Uh, and this is a type of warfare that now actually has um, it had Pentagon funding, uh, like the media reaction had like Pentagon involvement that you've actually got the military con- helping control a narrative uh, to increase government control over multiple nations to accomplish with psychology uh, what what Hitler tried successfully accomplished in Germany, but tried to accomplish by force of arms elsewhere. That's what we, I mean, in, in the 40s, Americans recognized that the Hollywood and, and the government and the military were working together. They're working together. And, and I heard one guy say, well, when and why would they have given that up? <laughs> but I bring this up because we have been waiting for this. Uh, Trumpet editor-in-chief and Key of David presenter Gerald Flurry has been warning way before it was cool, but way before you see all these uh, memes and and so forth, and people waking up to this fact uh, about this very thing, about a conspiracy against fatherhood, about miseducation and atheism and why the churches are weak and the rule of law and the Constitution and making marriage itself obsolete. 
over and over in in the nine uh, yeah in the nineties and and for for thirty years now you go back and look at those old Key of Davids that's exactly what the trumpet has been emphasizing the war is about your principles and your laws and your lifestyle and your morals and yes your sins this is the war now and as we've said this has always been there but people are waking up to it and recognizing that in summary the war is for your mind so get out there and fight it that is the week in review august 18th 2023 email us your thoughts on the program at letters at the trumpet.com we thank our panel richard palmer jeremiah Jacques, andrew miller and mihailo zekic and we thank parker campbell for sitting in with us and for editing the program and we thank you for listening to the week in review we look forward to being back with you on trumpet hour on wednesday